0: back everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's show, how Pancake Day, Mardi Gras, and Chocolate Easter Bunnies came to be. Pancake Day is coming up and my taste buds are growling for a delicious plate of buttery flapjacks covered with maple syrup. The hows and whys of just why we celebrate this Pancake Day have kind of slipped out of my memory, however, and I figured there's no time like now to dig into the story, learn something, and do some sharing. And my looking into it has produced a lot of fun facts about this special day and the 47 days beyond. I also have some serious advice for men who have practicing Christian wives or girlfriends who might really enjoy a box of chocolate or chocolate-covered strawberries on Valentine's Day. Don't do it. I'll explain why as we go forward. I have a short quiz at the end for you history geeks, and I'm hoping there will be a good deal of items shared here that you didn't already know. Like the fact that Pancake Day serves as a kind of pre-game show for the Christian calendar, and has three other names, Shrove Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, and Mardi Gras which is French for Fat Tuesday, followed by Ash Wednesday, and the kickoff for 40 days of Lent. And I had a few other questions as well, like, who decides when Easter Sunday will be? And when did bunnies get involved in Easter? And when did bunnies start laying eggs? And there are a lot of special days and times that Christians celebrate after Shrove Tuesday, which this year is coming up on February 13th and Ash Wednesday, which is also Valentine's Day this year, February 14th. Then there's Good Friday, Lent, and Easter season. So I'm going to cover them as well as my very basic understanding can. If you're not Christian, this might be a good primer for you if you want to better understand why your girlfriend might not be opening that box of chocolates on Valentine's Day this year. Every year we celebrate Shrove Tuesday, otherwise known as Pancake Day or Fat Tuesday, and this year's Shrove Tuesday, as I just said, falls on February 13th, which, as you hear this, isn't that far away, and which is marked on my calendar as Mardi Gras. February 14th is, of course, Valentine's Day, another story for another time. The exact date of Shrove Tuesday changes from year to year, But one thing stays the same, it's always 47 days before Easter Sunday. And it's always on a Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday is a Christian festival, and it's celebrated in many countries across the globe. It falls on the Tuesday before the beginning of Lent, which is a period of six weeks leading up to Easter. During Lent, Christians give up luxuries to better remember when Jesus went into the desert for 40 days to fast and pray. And many Christians try to honor that by fasting, praying, and giving to charity, which used to be called giving alms to the poor. This time that Jesus spent in the desert is known by Christians as the temptation of Christ, and it's a story worth sharing. If you're not Christian, this is one of those stories that are very important to the Christian faith, so it's important to learn if you want to understand their faith. One of the big items that they give up for Lent is candy. Yummy chocolates, you know. The kind that come in gift boxes that you only see once a year. The cruel twist this year is that Lent officially begins on February 14th this year. That's right, Valentine's Day. And some people will have to wait 40 long days before opening that heart-shaped box. I'll get back to the temptation of Christ in a minute or two. Here are some examples of what Christians give up for Lent, and some terms like Daniel fast. Christians of various traditions, including Catholics and Methodists, have voluntarily undertaken the Daniel fast during the season of Lent, in which one abstains from meat, fish, egg, dairy products, chocolates, ice creams, sugar, sweets, wine, or any alcoholic beverages. Another term is called Lenten Supper, and these are offered at churches. After attending a worship service, often on Wednesday and Friday evenings, it's common for Christians of various denominations to conclude that day's Lenten fast together through a communal Lenten Supper, which might be held in the church's parish hall. Lenten suppers ordinarily take place in the home setting during the 40 days of Lent during which a family or individual concludes that day's fast after a mealtime prayer. Lenten suppers often consist of a vegetarian soup, bread, and water, in order to maintain the season's focus on abstinence, sacrifice, and simplicity. Throughout Christendom, some adherents continue to mark the Lenten season with a traditional abstention from the consumption of meat, most notably among Lutherans, Roman Catholics, and Anglicans. The form of abstention may vary depending on what is customary. Some abstain from meat for 40 days. Some do so only on Fridays, or some only on Good Friday itself. Abstinence from alcohol during the season of Lent has traditionally been enjoined in remembrance of the sacred thirst of our Lord on the cross. Back to the temptation of Christ, which is important to understand if you want to know more about Christianity and its beliefs. Here is my explanation of the temptation of Christ, which can be lengthy, but I've tried to simplify it, not just for your sake, but for mine as well, because there are countless interpretations of the story. The temptation of Christ is told in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. After being baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus was tempted by the devil after forty days and nights of fasting in the Judean desert. All that time, Satan came to Jesus and tried to tempt him. Jesus refused each temptation. Satan departed, and Jesus returned to Galilee to begin his ministry. During this entire time of spiritual battle, Jesus was fasting. In Matthew and Luke, the devil tempts Jesus three times. The first time, he told Jesus to make bread out of stones to relieve his own hunger. In Matthew's account, Jesus replies, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that was a reference to Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. Only in Matthew's gospel is this entire sentence written, but it's a good one. The second temptation. The devil suggests that Jesus jump from a pinnacle, the one they're sitting on at the moment, and rely on angels to break his fall. The narratives of both Luke and Matthew have Satan quote Psalm 91, 11, and 12 to indicate that God has promised this assistance. Interesting side note here. The pinnacle has been described by some, the tower in Jerusalem, from which James, the brother of Jesus, was said by Hegesippus to have been thrown by way of execution. Said the devil in Luke, citing Psalm 91, which many believe was written by Moses. "'If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone.'" Once more, Jesus maintained his integrity and responded by quoting Scripture, saying, "'It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God.'" Quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 So as I see it, Jesus tells the devil to his face that he is the Lord and God over the devil. And that caused the devil to play his whole card with the third temptation. The devil's fallback was to promise Jesus power over all kingdoms of the world. So he takes him to a place where he can look out over all the kingdoms of the world. Matthew identifies this place as a very high mountain where all the kingdoms of the world can be seen. The spot pointed out by tradition as the summit from which Satan offered to Jesus dominion over all earthly kingdoms is called the Quarantania, a limestone peak on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. There Satan said, All these things I will give you if you fall down and do an act of worship to me. And Jesus replied, Get away, Satan! It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. In the Lord's Prayer, the clause, Lead us not into temptation, is a humble and trusting petition for God's help to enable people to overcome temptation. In the Christian belief, Jesus overcame the temptation and conquered Satan. So Jesus spent forty days in the desert, And today, many Christians spend 40 days of Lent giving up something. And, depending on what that something is, it can be a challenge. It's supposed to be if you're going to get anything out of it. There are several holy days within the season of Lent. But we need to cover Shrove Tuesday first, which, although it has its religious observations, is really not a holy day. Rather, it's a day known for pigging out on your favorite food or vice and giving yourself a report card on what you need to fix before you enter Lent's grueling 40 days of abstinence. This year, Tuesday, February 13th, is Shrove Tuesday, also known as Pancake Day around the world. So if you don't know how to make a pancake, this is the day to wake up early and give it a try. Sadly, I have never been a big pancake maker, but doing this story has inspired me, and I've changed my way. The other day I picked up pancake mix and some nice big fresh blueberries and gave it a try. And man, what I've been missing all these years. So, what does the Shrove and Shrove Tuesday stand for? The word Shrove comes from the word Shrive, which means absolve. And this differs upon which church you belong to, but it basically stands for forgiveness of sins. On Shrove Tuesday... Good Christians make a special point of self-examination, seeing what wrongs they need to repent and what parts of life they need to ask God's help for in fixing. Many believe that we are all works in progress and could use a tune-up. So, you tell yourself, I've neglected my body and for the next 40 days I'm going to diet and exercise well. Or I've been way too critical of others and I need to clean up my own act. So every day for 40 days, I'm going to look for the best in people and compliment them every chance I get. The list is endless, but it's about doing good and trying to be a better person. I think it's one of the strong points of Christianity. Other religions, I'm sure, have their strong points as well, but of them, I have too little familiarity to comment fairly. So now you know shrove equals absolution equals forgiveness. Apparently, my Anglo-Saxon ancestors went to confession and got shriven on Shrove Tuesdays. The Shrive bell rang and called people to church to confession. Maybe the bell ringer's name was Sergeant Shriver? I don't know. I came later in the pancake generation, although Pancake Tuesday started a few years before me, actually in 1439. They have found cookbooks from that date which include pancake recipes for Pancake Day. So where did Pancake Day get started? Was it a marketing promotion initiated by the Aunt Jemima people? Or IHOP, as many suspect? Actually, eggs only stay fresh for so long, and Pancake Day came around because it gave people a good excuse to use up their eggs and fats before entering Lent, where they cut back on eggs and fats as part of their ceremonial fasting. Remember, they didn't have refrigerators with dozens of choices handy like we do today. Pancakes were the perfect solution for using up those items. A traditional English pancake is very thin and served immediately with golden syrup or lemon juice and castor sugar, which are the usual toppings for those pancakes. My wife likes to make Swedish pancakes for the little ones. Swedish pancakes are smaller and tasty, and she serves applesauce with them. And they love them. In Pasquale's Palin in 1619, he wrote, And every man and maid do take their turn and toss their pancakes up before they burn. That's 1619. In England, they celebrate Pancake Day with pancake races, which feature large numbers of people, often in fancy clothes, racing down streets, tossing pancakes. It looks pretty crazy, and I'm looking at the pictures now. The object of the race is to get to the finish line first, carrying a hot frying pan with the pancakes still hot and flipping the pancake as you run. And yes, judges are watching you to make sure you flip it three times. The most famous pancake race, and the one that started it all, takes place at Olney in Buckinghamshire, England. Legend has it that in 1445, a woman of Olney heard the shriving bell when she was still making pancakes, "'and ran to the church in her apron, still clutching her frying pan. "'Obviously, you didn't want to be late for church in those days. "'The only pancake race is now world-famous. "'The rules are, competitors have to be a housewife "'and must wear an apron, a hat, and a scarf, "'and be carrying a frying pan containing a hot pancake. "'She must toss that pancake three times during the race.' The first woman to complete the course and arrive at the church, serve her pancake to the bell ringer, and be kissed by him is the winner. The bell ringer seems to be the winner here, too. At Westminster School in London, the annual pancake Grease is held. A verger from Westminster Abbey leads a procession of boys into the playground where the school cook tosses a huge pancake over a five-meter-high bar. The boys then race to grab a portion of the pancake, and the one who ends up with the largest piece receives a financial reward from the dean, originally a guinea or sovereign. Hopefully that's enough to pay for all the broken bones and teeth the boys probably suffered crashing into that high bar and each other. It does sound like a jolly good time, however. In Scarborough, Yorkshire, on Shrove Tuesday, everyone assembles on the promenade to skip. Long ropes are stretched across the road, and there might be ten or more people skipping on one rope. The origin of this custom is not known, but skipping was once a magical game associated with the sowing and spouting of seeds which may have been played on barrows, which are burial mounds, during the Middle Ages. Many towns throughout England used to hold traditional Shrove Tuesday football, otherwise called mob football, dating back as far as the 12th century. The practice mostly died out with the passing of the 1835 Highways Act, which banned the playing of football on public highways. I guess everything else was farm-field and they didn't want to ruin it. But a number of towns have managed to maintain the tradition to the present day, including Alnwick in Northumberland, Ashburn in Derbyshire, called the Royal Shrove Tide football match, Atherstone in Warwickshire, Sedgefield, called the ball game, and County Durham, and St. Columbine Major called Hurling the Silver Ball in Cornwall. It has been rumored that in recent years, highway traffic is stopped during these contests. (laughs) In the U.S., which is never to be outdone in the world of pancake racing, the little town of liberal Kansas helps to make the pancake race an international event this way. It all started in 1950 from a magazine picture of the only women racing each other to the church. Liberal J.C. President R.J. Leet contacted the Rev. Ronald Collins, vicar of St. Peter and St. Paul's Church in Olney, challenging their women to race against the women of Liberal. Like in Olney, the traditional prize of the race is the kiss of peace from the verger, otherwise known as the bell ringer. International Pancake Day in Liberal, Kansas, has expanded into a full-day event, beginning this year on Shrove Tuesday, February thirteenth, 2024, with a pancake breakfast, pancake eating and flipping contest, youth races, a men's pacer race, the international race, the Shriving Service, an international video call between the two cities, liberal and only, and capping it with a parade. On Shrove Tuesday, February thirteenth, 2024, at 11.55 a.m., the race goes on again, with the overall score standing at 40 wins for Liberal, and 31 for Olney. In 1980, the score didn't count because a media truck blocked the finish line in Olney. In 2017, the race did not count due to a malfunction in the time clock. In 2021, the event was canceled due to COVID. It comes to mind, I'm going to release this story Sunday, February 4th, to give you time to get ready for all this. And I haven't even started talking about Mardi Gras yet. It's time to organize a pancake race in your own neighborhood, provided there's no bickering about people who identify as housewives and who the official kisser is at the finish line. Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, Pancake Day, all four terms refer to the same day, the day before the beginning of Lent. By the way, that friendly little competition between liberal Kansas and only England with women running 415 yards down the streets of each town flipping pancakes, has been going on for more than 70 years now. It's still the only race of its kind on the planet, although there are some strange races. Just to name a few, there's Cupid's Undie Run, where men and women run in their underwear for the Children's Tumor Foundation. It's a grueling one mile in your bedroom best, and it takes place in about 30 cities in February. In January, it's the Great American Bacon Race held in Orlando and Miami. And again in February, the Krispy Kreme Race. Wait a minute. There are dozens, maybe hundreds, of fundraiser races in the U.S., and most of them I've never heard of. Like the Hatfield-McCoy Marathon in Williamson, West Virginia. The Gettysburg-Blue-Grey Half Marathon in Pennsylvania. The previously mentioned Krispy Kreme Marathon in Raleigh, North Carolina and the Star Wars rival run at Disney World in April. I'll stop here. Go to LonelyPlanet.com for ideas. When you start getting down on humanity, it's good to be reminded that people do a lot for causes. Now for Fat Tuesday, known to most of us as Mardi Gras. Right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. How Pancake Day, Mardi Gras, and Chocolate Easter Bunnies came to be. Mardi Gras, which means Fat Tuesday, is still the biggest celebration of Shrove Tuesday on the planet. But that's just the final day of two weeks of celebrations. The Tourism Council of New Orleans suggests that you arrive in New Orleans at least six days ahead of Fat Tuesday, which would put you in town around February 7th of this year. I'm still trying to get the pronunciation right, but as I understand it, the locals call it Nollins. They suggest you try to see at least one of the parades by the Super Crews, spelled K R E W E S. The three Super Crews are named Orpheus, Bacchus, and Endymion. Each crew sports about a thousand members and 500 riders participating. These are horses and floats. Note. The foot parades are smaller and take place only in the French Quarter. For instance, Bourbon Street is too old and narrow for the motorized floats, so foot parades take place on Bourbon Street. There are at least 80 parades which take place between February 6th and Fat Tuesday, which this year is on the 13th. Mardi Gras refers to the events of the Carnival Celebration beginning on or after the Christian Feast of the Epiphany, Three Kings Day and culminating on the day before Ash Wednesday, which we all know to be Shrove Tuesday. As you already know, Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday, reflecting the practice of the last night of eating rich, fatty foods before the ritual Lenten sacrifices and fasting of the Lenten season. And Mardi Gras isn't just celebrated in New Orleans. And I'll give you some examples, starting with Mobile, Alabama, where Mardi Gras-associated social events begin in November, followed by Mystic Society Balls, New Year's Eve, followed by parades and balls in January and February, celebrated up to midnight before Ash Wednesday. That's a long party. Mardi Gras Carnival is an important celebration in Anglican and Catholic European nations. For instance, Belgium. There's a three-day carnival of Binch near Mons. It's one of the best known in Belgium. It takes place around Shrove Tuesday, just before Lent. Performers known as ghillies wear elaborate costumes in the national colors of red, black, and yellow, and during the parade, they throw oranges at the crowd. Then there's the Czech Republic, where it's folk tradition to celebrate Mardi Gras, which is called Massapust, or Meat Fast. Prague is a great city to check out during Mardi Gras. In Germany, they have Fat Thursday, also called Greasy Thursday, as the remaining winter stores of lard and butter used to be consumed at that time before the fasting began. In Italy, Mardi Gras is called Martedì Grasso, Fat Tuesday. It's the main day of carnival, along with the Thursday before, which is called Fat Thursday. The most famous carnivals in northern Italy are in Venice, Veraggio, and Evrea, while in the southern part of Italy, the Sardinian Sartiglia, and they also employ the Battle of Oranges where the parade marchers throw oranges at the public. For you Swedish listeners, the celebration is called Fetisdagen. I hope I'm not saying that wrong. Mardi Gras arrived here in North America as a French Catholic tradition with the Lemoyne brothers, Pierre Lemoyne de Iberville and Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville, in the late 17th century, when King Louis XIV sent the pair to defend France's claim on the territory of Louisiana, which included what are now the U.S. states of Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana and part of eastern Texas, and what a good purchase that turned out to be when Thomas Jefferson made the purchase, thereby doubling the size of the United States. That expedition, led by Iberville, entered the mouth of the Mississippi River on the evening of March 2nd, 1699. They didn't know then it was the river explored and claimed for France by René-Robert-Cavalier, otherwise known as La Salle, in 1683 the party proceeded upstream to a place on the east bank about 60 miles downriver from where Gnarlins is today, and made camp. That was March 3, 1699. Mardi Gras. So in honor of this holiday, Iberville named the spot Pont du Mardi Gras, French Mardi Gras Point, and called the nearby tributary Bayou Mardi Gras, the first mystic society, or CREW, K-R-E-W-E. Was formed in Mobile in 1711, and Mobile and Biloxi all became big parts of that early on. The first Mardi Gras parade held in New Orleans was recorded to have taken place in 1833 with Bernard de Marigny, funding the first organized parade, tableau, and ball. So that's where the parades began. One more note Mardi Gras celebrations are part of the basis of the slogan. Laissez le bon temps brûler. Let the good times roll. And I know you old timers know that one. Come on, baby, let the good times roll. Oh, I wish I could play it. If one of you would like to chip in for a universal music license, please do email me at one thousand one stories podcast at gmail.com. Anyway, those are the basics of how Mardi Gras got started. And now comes the first day of Lent, which is called. Ash Wednesday Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent in Western Christianity. It's a holy day of prayer and fasting, and it marks the first day of Lent, the six weeks of penitence before Easter for Christians. Ash Wednesday is observed by Catholics, Lutherans, Moravians, Anglicans, and Methodists, as well as by some churches in the Reformed tradition, including Presbyterian churches. Ash Wednesday is traditionally observed with fasting and abstinence from meat, as it's the first day of Lent, many Christians begin Ash Wednesday by marking a Lenten calendar, praying a Lenten daily devotional, and making a Lenten sacrifice that they will not partake of until the arrival of Easter tide or Easter season. The earliest written devotionals were written in Ireland in the 9th century. Many Christians attend special Ash Wednesday church services, at which churchgoers receive ash on their foreheads. Ash Wednesday derives its name from this practice, in which the placement of ashes is accompanied by the words, Repent, and believe in the gospel, or the dictum, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ashes are prepared by burning palm leaves from the previous year's Palm Sunday celebrations. The Catholic Church and the Methodist Church say that the ashes should be those of palm branches blessed at the previous year's Palm Sunday service while a Church of England publication says they may be made from the burnt palm crosses of the previous year. These sources do not speak of adding anything to the ashes other than, for the Catholic liturgy, a sprinkling with holy water when blessing them. Where ashes are placed on the head by smudging the forehead with a sign of the cross, many Christians choose to keep the mark visible throughout the day. One thing you're likely to hear in church as Lent begins is this, We begin this holy season by acknowledging our need for repentance and our need for the love and forgiveness shown to us in Jesus Christ. I invite you, therefore, in the name of Christ, to observe a holy Lent by self-examination and penitence, by prayer and fasting, by practicing works of love, and by reading and reflecting on God's holy word. So, in review, Lent is a time of penitence that takes us up to Easter. Eastertide, also known as Easter time or the Easter season, or Paschaltide, also known as Paschal time or the Paschal season, is a festal season in the liturgical year of Christianity that focuses on celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians believe that Christ was crucified, his body was placed in a tomb, and he rose from the dead. Eastertide, which many of us call Easter season, begins on Easter Sunday which initiates Easter week in Western Christianity and bright week in Eastern Christianity. There are several Eastertide customs across the Christian world, including flowering the cross, sunrise services, the wearing of Easter bonnets by women, exclaiming the Paschal greeting, which is to say, Christ is risen, answered by, He is risen indeed, and decorating Easter eggs, which are a symbol of the empty tomb. Additional Tide traditions include egg hunting, eating special Easter foods, and watching Easter parades. The Easter lily, a symbol of the resurrection in Christianity, traditionally decorates the chancel area of churches on this day and for the rest of Eastertide. Easter time is a period of 50 days, spanning from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday. It's celebrated as a single, joyful feast called the Great Lord's Day. Each Sunday of the season is treated as a Sunday of Easter. In some traditions, Easter Sunday is the first Sunday of Eastertide, and the following Sunday, Low Sunday, is the second Sunday of Eastertide, and so on. Each following Sunday after Easter Sunday has a special name and purpose. It's definitely a time of joy among Christians, as they remember that Christ rose from the dead to show them the way and to instruct them that death holds no power over eternal life. Pentecost Sunday takes place on the seventh Sunday after Easter Sunday. It commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary and the apostles of Jesus Christ while they were in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Weeks, as described in Acts of the Apostles. For many Christians and children... On Easter Sunday, a bunny will deliver chocolate eggs to many households in the English-speaking world. Have you ever wondered how this seemingly bizarre tradition came to be? It turns out Easter actually began as a pagan festival celebrating spring in the Northern Hemisphere, long before the advent of Christianity. Since prehistoric times, people have celebrated the equinoxes and the solstices as sacred times. The spring equinox is a day where the amount of dark and the amount of daylight is exactly identical, so you can tell that you're emerging from winter because the daylight and the dark have come back into balance. Following the advent of Christianity, the Easter period became associated with the resurrection of Christ. The worship of many gods and idols became unacceptable to Christians. But in the first couple of centuries after Jesus' life, feast days in the new Christian church were attached to the old pagan festivals. Spring festivals with the theme of new life and relief from the cold of winter became connected explicitly to Jesus having conquered death by being resurrected after the crucifixion. Some people call Easter the movable feast because it changes its date every year. And here's how that happened. In 325 AD, the first major church council, the Council of Nicaea, determined that Easter should fall on the Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox. That's why the date moves, and why Easter festivities are often referred to as movable feasts. There's a defined period between March 25th and April 25th, on which Easter Sunday must fall, and that's determined by the movement of the planets and the sun. In most countries in Europe, the name for Easter is derived from the Jewish festival of Passover. In Greek, the feast is called Pasha, in Italian, Pasqua, in Danish, it is Pesky, and in French, it is is Pâques. But in English-speaking countries, and in Germany, Easter takes its name from a pagan goddess from Anglo-Saxon England who is described in a book by the 8th-century English monk Bede. Esther, E-O-S-T-R-E, was a goddess of spring, or renewal, and that's why her feast is attached to the vernal equinox. In Germany, the festival is called Ostern, and the goddess is called Astra. Many of the pagan customs associated with the celebration of spring eventually became absorbed into Christianity as symbols of the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, eggs, as a symbol of new life, became a common people's explanation of the resurrection. After the chill of the winter months, nature was coming to life again. As we all know, Decorating eggs is still a popular custom, and it's been going on for a long time. In fact, since the Middle Ages, that was the time when people began decorating eggs and eating them as a treat following Mass on Easter Sunday, after that long fast through Lent. Rabbits and hares are also associated with fertility, and were symbols linked to the goddess Esther. So that's how rabbits came into the picture. The first association of the rabbit with Easter, in writing, was a mention of the Easter hare in a book by a German professor of medicine, George Frank von Brankenau, published in 1722. He recalled a folklore that hares would hide the colored eggs that children hunted for, which suggested to us that as early as the 18th century, decorated eggs were hidden in gardens for egg hunts. So that custom has been around for a long time. Commercialization during the 19th century saw rabbits become a popular symbol of Easter with the growth of the greeting card industry. Postage services became affordable, and people wanted to keep in touch with people. So card companies like Hallmark became big by launching images of cute little rabbits and Easter eggs on cards. You know, it's just like Christmas if there's money to be made. The first edible Easter bunnies made from sugared pastry were made in Germany in the 19th century. Soon after, big confectionery companies like Cadbury in England started manufacturing chocolate eggs. Chocolate without the sweets used to be something that was bitter and was drunk turned into something that was sweetened and turned into a confectionery treat. Easter eggs were one of the areas of marketing for chocolate. And today, chocolate eggs and egg haunts are a popular part of Easter celebrations around the world. Well, that pretty much covers it. And here's that quiz that I promised you history nerds. I'll pop the questions first and give you the answers after, so I'll give you time to think about it. Question 1. Pancake Day has three other names. What are they? Number 2. Why might giving your loved ones chocolates for Valentine's Day be an untimely decision this year? Question 3. Is the Lenten supper a big hearty meal? Question 4. What are the three temptations of Christ? Question 5. What does the Shrove and Shrove Tuesday mean? Question 6. How is the day on which Easter falls determined? Question 7. Who or what was Easter named after? Question 8. How did eggs and bunnies become associated with the Easter season? And our last question... What is the significance and origin of eggs and bunnies to Easter season? And now your answers. Question one. Pancake Day has three other names. What are they? Shrove Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, and Mardi Gras. Question two. Why might giving your loved ones chocolates for Valentine's Day be an untimely decision this year? Because this year, Lent begins on Valentine's Day. Question three. Is the Lenten supper a big hearty meal? Not exactly. Just soup and bread and water. Question four. What are the three temptations of Christ? The first one. Are you hungry? Make bread out of stones. Two. Go ahead and jump from this pinnacle and have angels break your fall. Three. I'll give you dominion over every kingdom on earth if you bow down to me. Question 5. What does the Shrove and Shrove Tuesday mean? It means a day to seek absolution for your sins. 6. How is the day on which Easter falls determined? In 325 AD, the first major church council, the Council of Nicaea, determined that Easter should fall on the Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox, and they still do that today. Question 7. Who or what is Easter named after? That was the goddess of spring, Esther, O-E-S-T-E-R. Question 8. What do eggs and bunnies have to do with the Easter season? The eggs symbolize birth, the empty shell, Christ's tomb, bunnies, regeneration, and new life. I hope you enjoyed our show today. Even if you're not a Christian, there's only good in knowing a little more about some of the days and traditions that Christians celebrate. Thanks for joining us. Your reviews are greatly appreciated, and we hope you share our show with others. And here are some recent mixed reviews that some of our shows have received. The first one, Solid Gold, five stars. And this one's for 1001 Best of Jack London. I've listened to this podcast and his others for years. It has introduced me to the amazing world of Jack London. Sure, I've read White Fang and The Call of the Wild, but the stories vividly bring to life a bygone era. The tone of voice in the story fits exactly the tenor of the reading. It's a pleasure to listen, as I'm driving to work or laying down to go to sleep. More than once I've paused the podcast to go and look up in a dictionary, or Wikipedia, a term that was used in his narration. By the way, if you are an advertiser, thoughtfully consider purchasing some time on this podcast. It will be money well spent. That one from Steve Still, Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you, Steve. and Thank you for the pitch to advertisers. Greatly appreciated. And this one. True Entertainment. This one is for 1001 Stories for the Road. Where we just started an Agatha Christie mystery called The Mystery of the Blue Train. True Entertainment. Five stars. 1001 Stories for the Road. Always enjoyable. Great for relaxing. That one from 222Like. Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, also for 1001 Stories for the Road. North London Listener, five stars. I read The Moonstone many years ago, as I know the ending. But that seems to make it even more enjoyable to listen to the twists and turns and recognize the clues dropped so skillfully by the author. just finished that story, The Moonstone, there. I love the ending of the Moonstone, and I wonder whether Wilkie Collins was considered very advanced for his times to recognize that the rightful place for the Moonstone diamond to end up at the close of the book was in India, in the hands of the Hindu gods, rather than sparkling in Rachel Verinder's De North London fan, Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you, North London listener. Appreciate that. And this one, for 1001 classic short stories and tales. Excellent. Five stars. Thank you. A great companion to my bike ride home from work. That one from Whamhead, Apple Podcast Great Britain, which would be West Ham, I'll bet ya. And this one, excellent read, one thousand one classic short stories and tales, five stars. The reader allows the listener to imagine their own details surrounding the story, not clouded with superfluous music and effects which can distract the listener from the intent of the original authors. Keep up the great work. Down from Red Wolf How Apple Podcast U.S. And amazing 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories, five stars. First, I listened to this when I was sick, but now I love it. Along with audio, better than Apple Music. It's a long selection. Keep it up, and I'll give you a thumbs up. That one from Emoji Emoji, Apple Podcast, US. And this one, great selection. This one's for 1001 Radio Crime Solvers, five stars. Great selection and assortment of radio crime stories. So much fun to hear the stories I imagine my parents used to listen to. Keep up the great work, John. That one from New Mexico Gal, Apple Podcast. Thank you, my old friend, New Mexico Gal. Greatly appreciated. There are many here, and they're coming in for all of our other podcasts. Not many lately for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, where we've started off the year with our Best Of series, where we've got great stories out there, and it's our oldest and most popular podcast. So, if you haven't done a review for a while, please give us a shot at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I love sharing these stories with you. Hope you enjoy them. And we'll be back with an original story or an interview next week Sunday at noon Eastern Time. And between now and then, a great best of coming up late Thursday night, early Friday morning. See you then. And a truly happy Pancake Day to all of you.